Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 467, air date September 30th, 2019. All right, we're going to start shortly. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Welcome, everyone, to North End Yoga. Um, Alicia and I opened the studio here in the North End uh, 12 years ago, and uh, we've had great success in the neighborhood. We used to live here for years, and now we moved not too far away. have uh, five little kids between the, the two of us. Uh, so if you've not been here before, welcome. And uh, welcome to Dr. Shiva. I had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of weeks ago when I attended one of his talks in, uh, in Cambridge, and I was really impressed by some of the material that he shared and his knowledge around this topic and uh, so I thought, Alicia, we need to have this guy at our studio. And he accepted to come so we're so excited to have him here, to have you guys here. Uh, a couple of logistical announcements, if you park at the Haymarket Garage over there, parcel 7, we do validate the parking. Just make sure that you swing by the front desk, we'll stamp your ticket. Um, if you want water, it's straight down the hallway past the bathrooms to your right. Uh, we took the liberty of printing some educational materials here. You don't need them for the talk, but help yourself to them if you wish. Um, and we also have a, a good friend of ours, a homeopath, Dr. Richard Moskowitz, coming on the 19th of October to do a talk, and we're selling his book here today, and all the proceeds go for the Health Choice Fraction. Did I miss anything? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, how many people are from Massachusetts? Everyone? Okay. Yeah, I think last time when we did it in Cambridge, we had a number of people who came from Connecticut and New York. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, what I want to talk about today is a, is a way of looking at vaccines and to provide you an educational framework that goes beyond the vax and anti-vax discourse. And it's, it's a larger issue for me because I think what's happened to this country um, is that everything gets split up into some division, right? Left or right, vax, anti-vax, uh, pro this, con that. And I, and I think that actually serves people who actually want to keep people divided so we never actually have conversation or debate. Um, and for that matter, anything constructive. So what we end up doing is we always focus on um, a small glimpse of reality or different glimpses of reality, and we never connect the dots to actually get a framework for understanding the whole, right? And I think, I mean, we're at a yoga studio. You know, I've practiced yoga for many years. I grew up, and I'll share with some of you my background, but yoga is actually about unity. It's actually about um, knowing that things are interconnected within your body, within the universe, and in, in a many other things that go beyond just yourself. So I think, uh, I think, so I think it's fitting we're doing it in a yoga studio, uh, this talk, because there's many, many good vibes here that essentially set us a framework uh, for really uh, figuring out how we unite people by going back to a framework of education. Someone great once said, right, all uh, suffering comes from ignorance. Um, so let's figure out if we can put together a framework so all of you can, uh, when you leave here, you have a framework for having discussions with your neighbors, whether they're Republicans or Democrats or independents, it doesn't matter. Uh, because this discussion goes beyond politics. Um, many of you know, you know, this is, uh, you probably know I am running for office. I ran for office last year. To me, both parties really don't make any difference. Uh, you're riding a Chevy or a Ford. Uh, it really matters who is driving the car. 
uh, because both of the parties don't really serve our interests anymore. And they force you into one of these parties. I happen to be running as a Republican this time because the Democrats won't let me run. And last time when we ran as independents, they tried to keep us off the debate stage. Okay, so it doesn't really matter what matters is the substance of what we're going to talk about. And do we have a platform ever to get out a discourse? And that's what I'm hoping to do. So the vaccine discourse um, needs to be understood in the framework, what I call three pillars. The first pillar is what I call risk. How do we understand risk? So if you want to sort of take notes, one pillar is let's really talk about what risk, um, how we collectively live in a world where we know from the time we walk out of our house, anything can happen to us, right? You drive your car, something happens, but we collectively have decided how we manage risk. So that's one pillar of this framework. The other pillar is what I call precision and personalized medicine. Um, since the post-genomic era, since the Genome Project ended in 2003, and we'll come back to this, so uh, you know, I'm going to go through this a couple of times, but at a high level, in 2003, we found out that we don't have a half a million genes. Um, we thought what made a human being different than a worm was that a, we knew a worm in 1993 had around 20,000 genes, and we thought a human being had around a million to half a million genes. When the Genome Project ended, the irony of the, that big Genome Project was we only have 20,000 genes. And what that forced biology to realize is not the genes who make us who we are, but that genes can be turned on or, on or off by what you actually consume, the environment, what you eat, potentially what you think. And these things turn, uh, turn off and turn on genes. And basically, medicine needs to move to the right medicine for the right person at the right time. And if you go back to many of the yogic traditions, many of the traditional medicine traditions, that's what they were based on. If you had the same ailment as you know, someone else did in this room, you didn't all get the same medicine. You, you, you got things tweaked a little bit, right? So since the... Uh, the Genome Project ended, if you go to Kendall Square, all of those biotech companies, there's a recognition that the old model of drug development, find this little drug, right, that's going to help everyone, doesn't work. You have to do what's called combination therapy, and it's about the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So this notion of personalized medicine. And the third part of this is that there is something, um, you know, so, uh, the other part of this, you have to look at it from an engineering perspective, right? So we talked about risk. Second part is personalized and precision medicine. The third part of it is starting to look at things from an engineering standpoint. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, civil engineers, what do they do? They build bridges, roads. Agreed? Um, electrical engineers, what do they do? They go build power plants. Um, naval engineers, they go build ships. Now, in each one of those cases, um, it is human beings who are actually building these very complex engineering structures. And when we build those engineering structures, the entire process, people calculate risk. It comes, comes back to risk, but in engineering, we as humans are actually constructing something, and we want to understand that first pillar. These are interconnected pillars, by the way, risk. Now, when it comes to the human body, what's interesting is if you, whatever, if you want to take a religious perspective or if you want to take an a-religious perspective, something constructed this, right, either by design or by a supernatural being, whatever your belief is, and this thing that was constructed is an engineering system. Now, what biology is trying to do is to try to, it, it's sort of doing reverse engineering because we didn't create this. So biology attempts to, in the last 50 years, since the discovery of DNA, we've been trying to understand the pieces of the puzzle. 
So that's why you have all these biologists who have to focus in very narrow ways to understand just one piece. So you can win a Nobel Prize just for understanding how two molecules interact, right? You don't have to understand the whole body, but biology today incentivizes people to understand a little piece of the puzzle. It's called reductionism. Reductionist thinking is um, you try to understand a little piece, you're not worried about the whole. Now, there is some value to that because we don't know all the parts of this engineering system. And the reason I bring this up is in engineering, if something goes wrong, even if one airplane falls out of the sky, it's not like you say, oh, that was just one airplane. We don't do that, right? We basically, you call review boards and people get very uh, concerned and we go try to solve that problem because we know that one airplane falling out may be a systemic issue with some underlying system in that engineering thing, engineering system that we didn't think about. Unfortunately, in medicine, it appears that when one person reports, hey, my child got vaccine injured, oh, that's just, that's nothing. And I think this comes from, a, we can have a discourse on this because the medical training is not an engineering systems training. The medical doctors go to undergraduate, then they go to two years, and then after that, they're learning recipes. When they have an ailment, they look in the physician's desk reference and they fire off a series of recipes. Some of it, unfortunately, could be automated, the way medicines run. And because that model builds, in my view, an arrogance towards looking at the body as a system. And that arrogance is that there are many things we don't know. That's the reality. And in, if I build a computer, I actually know most of it because I actually built it. But we don't know all the parts of the system. And so when you have a academic and a medical environment which does not want to know that they are not gods. They don't know the whole system. And what ends up happening is they push arrogance. And so this is a fundamental third pillar of this because we don't have engineers who are involved in understanding these problems. We actually have a model that comes out when you see a person with a white um, you know, shirt or dress that we're supposed to revere them. We don't do this in engineering. You know, I run software companies. If one customer calls with a problem, I don't shoot, shoo them away. I said, we have to find out what that is because it may reveal something mechanistic. Okay? So the three pillars we want to start thinking about is risk, this notion of personalized precision medicine. This is the way the world is going. So in summary, there's the issue of risk. There's the issue of personalized precision medicine and the fact that the body is an engineering system, many things that we do not know. And to go into this, assuming we know all of this, um, it, it causes a significant issue of understanding risk, okay? So when you think about when we build a bridge, okay, there's a lot of bridges in Massachusetts, right? A lot of them uh, probably have issues with them. But if I were to tell you that uh, there's one out of 100, uh, 100 um, uh, bridges will fall apart if a hurricane hits, right? So you would call that the risk is one out of what? 100, which you'd say is 1%. Agreed? Um, the issue that happens is all of us here are individuals. And at a fundamental level, if you look at the, where we want to go, each one of us wants to pursue our dreams. We want to have ultimate freedom, right? I have a dream. I want to be this. You want to be that. And we want to support people's freedom. But in a society, we also have to balance that individual freedom with the collective decisions, right? And this is always a very fine balance. I want something and we collectively want something. So if you take the bridge uh, example, let's say people find out that there's a one out of 100 chance that 
bridges fall apart when a hurricane hits. So we collectively may make a decision where we say, you know what, that 1% is too high, right? But we would decide that as, as, as a public. And we'd say, that risk is too high, and we may decide, okay, we're going to vote for some bill which is going to impose on us some increase in taxes, so to raise, let's say, about $10 billion to reinforce all those bridges, right? But we collectively did it because we decided we don't want to be killing ourselves or something uh, unfortunate happening if we cross a bridge. So if we do that, um, and let's say, and there's bridge reinforcement technology, which may cost us a lot of money, and we go and reinforce all these bridges all over Massachusetts. I don't know how many bridges there are. Let's say 1,000 bridges. We spend a lot of money and time. We reinforce these bridges. And what we find out after this reinforcement process is we find out that when hurricanes hit, two out of 100 of those bridges are falling apart. Okay? So what would you say? You'd say... You, you know, you, it would be wrong scientifically to say that that bridge reinforcement we did to try to prevent something from occurring caused that, because it's just a correlation. But we would be prudent and we'd say, wait a minute, something's wrong. We spent all this money taking a preventative action to reinforce those bridges and double the number of bridges are falling down. What would we do? We would say, hey, let's bring smart people together. Let's try to figure out maybe that reinforcement technology did something that we didn't understand. It changed the dynamics of those mechanical structures, which we didn't predict before. But we would not be arrogant, right? We would try to do that. But collectively, all of us would be pretty pissed off if we didn't do that because we paid, whatever, $2,200 billion in taxes to do that. And so we would call the best engineers. People would look at it. They would do analysis. They would understand the me mechanisms. And they would come back and really do it. We would want them as a public to do a rational disclosure of it. Agreed? Okay, I want to give you that framework because it gives you a framework for looking at this area called risk. So today, uh, in, in such a decision, it was a collective thing. But suppose you each had bridges around, suppose we were back into the old times when we all had our home and we all had a moat around it and we all had our own bridges and the government came and said, all of you need to reinforce your bridges. Okay? Um, given those statistics, the 1%, 2%, what, how would you feel? and you had to spend $100,000, and maybe your property taxes went up to do that, you would probably get a little bit upset because this is a government imposing something on you when the risk data shows 1% in that case with hurricanes and 2% after you reinforce, you'd say, wait a minute, even after re reinforcement, there's going to be a higher risk. A, you would be upset. B, you would probably want more proof. And C, you'd probably want that choice left up to you. Okay. So the reason I'm giving you that is the definition of risk and calculating risk is something that we rely on in the modern world. Pretty much everything we do comes down to risk. Uh, Alicia and Alessandra, when you bought this place and you built it as business people, right? You had to decide how much insurance you're going to take, right? Um, something happens, right? So you're, even as a small business person, you're, you're making risk how much insurance you get. When we all decided to get in our cars today, we know that we all pay insurance. Um, a 18-year-old kid who probably has 10 DUIs is probably going to pay a higher insurance than someone who's 50 or 60 who's never had an accident. But we've collectively agreed to that. Uh, and some people who don't agree to it say, well, I'm not going to drive a car. But there's some choice in there. You can drive a car. And if you do decide to drive a car, you're going to get insurance. But we all have seen some sense of fairness. And pretty much in most areas of our lives, um, there's this risk calculation that we do. Sometimes people have 
um, you know, sort of paranoia, you call it. Like maybe if they're going out of their house, they may wear a helmet because they think airplane's going to fall on them, right? That's sort of a, a perceived risk. But then there are real risks. So in the modern world, who is deciding these risks? Who is calculating these risk numbers? That's a, it's a question, right? Um, some of these risks, we make our own personal decisions. We, probably from the time you got up today, you probably made, whether you knew it or not, probably about 50 to 100 different implicit and explicit decisions around risk. How, and you probably don't even think about it. But on many, many big problems of this notion of risk, we rely on a group of people called academics. Okay? We rely on people called scientists um, or experts. And um, as I talked about last time, in, John Kennedy gave this very interesting speech in 1963 to the National Academy of Sciences, which is one of the most prestigious organizations. It's like a big prestige to be accepted into the National Academy of Sciences. And this was, you can look it up on YouTube. It's not a well-known speech, but it's a very beautiful speech he gave. And he basically um, challenges, or some ways, um, comments that, to these scientists that, you know, in the modern world, we, and he was referring to politicians, or people, us as citizens, rely on you. And he was talking about 2,500 scientists. We rely on you to give us expert advice because the problems of society have become so complex. And in that, in that decision, in that discourse, he makes a very, very interesting observation. There's a chair there and two, two over here. Um, he makes a very interesting observation. He says, in we, this, this sort of, in some ways it's a covenant people have, right, with academics, is based on the assumption that you are disinterested, disinterested objective third parties, okay? So the assumption, that the, the assumption is that academics do not have a horse in the uh, game, right? Uh, they're, making, they're doing science based on a disinterested ob objective interest, third-party interest. So whatever they're doing, it's not being infiltrated by someone giving money, right? Or, or, or they're not going to get some benefit out of it. But this is a pretty big assumption. Um, and that was in 1963. Five to six years later, something very interesting occurred um, in academic funding. Um, and that was an amendment, you could look it up, called the Mansfield Amendment. And what the Mansfield Amendment came around, you know, as the Vietnam War was ending, um, there was a time when you, we have a large military budget, but a very small piece of that military budget was taken and given to basic science, which means some wild research took place in the 40s, 50s, 60s, some really great research because that little small sliver of that military budget, no one noticed, but some really smart guy at Princeton or Bell Labs got it, and, he did, and they did some really good research. But post or as the Vietnam War was ending, the Mansfield Amendment said that um, no uh, portion of the military budget could go to basic sciences unless it was for weaponry. Okay. So what that did was that little piece, which was a lot, even though it was, it was small of this large budget, was a lot for basic research, went underneath what was called the National Science Foundation, NSF. You may have heard of it. So the National Science Foundation is a highly political organization. And, and that little piece was a large percentage of their entire budget. So what that did to the dynamics of academia was um, people who went to academia did it because they were really interested in something. To, it was called the ivory tower because you could go there 
and not be worried about being attacked and you could do some great research. But after that took place, what ended up happening with academia starting around that time to today is that the people who are allowed to stay in academia were people who weren't scientists but academics. And the distinction is an academic is a business person. It's not how good they are, but they have to be really good, good at science, but how good they are bringing in money, grants. And if any one of you have, have been on the academic track, once you get your PhD and you start going into academia, you have about seven years to get tenure. Tenure means you have a job for life, right? So you have seven years to prove out your research. And so what are you doing? You're trying to get as much money as you can, and you're trying to write as many papers as you can, and the way you get tenure in academia is not just how many papers you write, but how many people say you did good work. So let me repeat that. So if Richard here um, uh, is a young PhD who just started working at Harvard and he, want, he, he wants to do some innovative research in pancreatic cancer research, okay? And he's come up with some great ideas. He publishes papers. But let's say um, Alessandra is like, the, the leading cancer researcher in the world, sits on the number one journals. Well, Richard's tenure is gonna be based on, did Alessandra cite him in her research, okay? Or did how many other people cite Richard's work? So what that means is Richard is gonna to have to pay homage to Alessandra. And he may have some very innovative research that counters the narrative of what's going on. You follow what I'm saying? So, so it is not, so that environment is not an environment for innovation. It's actually an environment that regulates being a lemming and following. And, and just to give you an aside, Einstein did not publish one piece of research peer-reviewed. So you heard of peer review? They make it sound like it's some exalted thing. Einstein argued that if new things come out, that means peer review can actually suffocate new things because you have to get the blessings of the other 99%. And, and remember, there was 99 people out of 100 who thought that the sun went around the earth and one guy had evidence that was not true, right? So part of this process is this entire thing is moved away from the scientific method, which is you have to do research, you have to do the observation, you have to do the experiments, right? Hard experiments. And then you have to report those results. That's called the scientific method. Remember this, right? You observe something. Uh, you come up with a hypothesis, you do an experiment, you get the results, and you put the results together no matter what the results, you know, whether you like them or not, and then you apply the scientific method. This started moving into a different world, away from the scientific method to what's called the scientific consensus. You've heard of this term? There's consensus that global warming is taking place. There's consensus that genetically engineered foods are safe. There's consensus that vaccines cause no injury. So this is one of the fundamental things. Science, because of this incentive, started moving away from the scientific method to scientific consensus because the economics of science have changed. So you could be not that great of an academic, but you know how to bring in money. You know how to play the game. You know how to you know, pay homage, in Richard's case, to Alessandra, and she cites your paper. Because when your tenure review comes up, which means you get a job for life, they not only look at how many papers, they say, well, how many of your peers said you did a good job? So think about it. It's not based on you doing radically new research. It's how many of your peers said, oh, Richard's part of us. So think about that.
Do you guys know this is how tenure works, by the way? Okay, so this is like the heart of it, and that's what takes place between the one mile between Kendall Square and Harvard Square, okay? <laughs> so between that longitude and the latitude, that location is where the intelligentsia of the world get produced. And that incentive model is not to do innovation, but to pay homage to others who've already exalted themselves. And I'm not saying there's not some good scientists, but I'm saying this is a model that's evolved. So you have to understand this is the operating system of science today. By the way, uh, Chuck Schumer has a bill in Congress which says, it's quite interesting, it's Bill 729, I think 719, which says, there's going to be no more discussion about climate, if you want to do a whole other talk about this, because there's scientific consensus on it. No agency could even have any more discussion. This is not science, guys. It's, it's a violation of this, it's a, forget even science, it's a violation of freedom because truth comes from open, free discourse. And so when you start looking at what's going on with the vaccine area, it's not, to me, it's a example. It's a larger, the vaccine discourse to me, what's, it provides us, frankly, an awesome opportunity. Um, if, you, if we can understand the next two pillars I'm gonna talk about, to rally, actually become educated citizens to actually get back to what the journey of truth was supposed to be, which was you have freedom. Freedom, I can make a decision, you can make a decision, we can have open discourse. And out of freedom, we have the opportunity to actually have real conversations, which means you actually get a truth. Not what you want truth to be, but what it actually is. So this is one of the incredible things that's taking place in our time. Um, you know, the Council of Trent, I don't know if you remember this, it basically, the edicts, were passed, which basically said you could never refute the Catholic Church or, or the Bible. And those treatises were used against Galileo. And when you have a bill like this in Congress right now, it's very, very reminiscent of the Council of Trent, which means no more discussion on stuff because there's scientific consensus. There's nothing called scientific consensus. It's an oxymoron. There's a scientific method. So I think that's one of the, so if you don't practice the scientific method, any of the calculations you do on risk assessment are gonna be tainted because you are now going into it a priori saying, oh, there is no risk with vaccines, there are no risks with genetically engineered foods, and then you get supported to support that narrative, okay? So the risk assessment we have outsourced, you know, because these problems are uh, complex to people called academics, and I would argue that academic environment has been compromised starting with the Mansfield Amendment. So there's some, you know, we gotta fix certain things. Probably one of the things maybe to eliminate tenure. Probably eliminate peer review journals. There's some fundamental things we have to start doing. So let's talk about precision and personalized medicine. Um, and uh, I'll give you a little bit of a background because I, I'm trying to keep this um, not getting too intense into the science. But in, but in the area of precision and personalized medicine, this is an aspect of freedom again that goes back, you know, since, since, uh, since you know, knowledge started being discovered. So I'll give you my personal experience. I grew up in India. Uh, my grandmother was a farmer. She worked, you know, 16 hours a day as a subsistence farmer. But she practiced a system of Indian medicine called Siddha or Ayurveda. In the traditional systems of you, anyone heard of Ayurveda? So... Siddha was a predecessor to Ayurveda, which include all five systems, which include yoga, which include uh, meditation, which include herbs, which include the use of heavy metals, 
uh, in micronutrient levels, and it included, included martial arts. Um, when the Aryan invasion took place around 1,000, 2,000 years ago, that was all separated. So Ayurveda is actually only one branch, but the original system was all integrated. Even the systems were integrated. So my grandmother was a practitioner of Siddha. She didn't have any formal training. She had tattoos all over her arms, uh, but she learned this you know, through her own methods. But on weekends, my grandmother was a village healer. So there are many different techniques that the Siddha system taught to observe someone and figure out their, what you would call their prakriti. I call it their homeostasis. Okay, so the notion was each person was a unique individual, and these methods figured out the unique nature of that person using a, a, a system. I'm not going to get into it, but they characterized them using vata, pitta, kapha. Okay? And once they characterized them, they then figured out your imbalance. So Richard's imbalance, let's say he had some imbalance, was a different imbalance based on, it was all relative to him, what his natural state was, versus, let's say, um, John's imbalance. You got it? And based on that imbalance, they came up with combinations. It could be food, it could be herbs, it could even be uh, yoga exercises. By the way, not everyone got the same system. It was actually attuned to the individual, even meditation. Some people should not be doing certain types of meditation. Uh, let's say mantra meditation because it could cause depression if they're already a depressed person, right? So there was all this, it was highly personalized. You following me? So medical systems of this traditional world were always personalized systems of medicine, recognizing each person was different. Fast forward to Western medicine. Western medicine, if you look at the origin of it, it actually came out of war, okay? Florence Nightingale, everyone, anyone ever heard of her? Okay, what, what was she? What else was she? What else was she? I don't know if you know this, Florence Night Nightingale was a respected statistician. They, they uh, nurse, you know, the, in some ways it was sort of sexist to just reduce her to, to a nurse, not, which is itself a very eminent profession, but she was a member of the Royal Society of Statistics. And she was actually, I would say, the mother or the father, whatever way we want to use it, of modern data science. And she was, in fact, the creator of the modern healthcare system. So what did Florence, and why do I say that? Well, in the, when the Crimean War was taking place um, in the 1800s, she was the first one to notice that there were more soldiers coming after they came into the hospital than being shot on the battlefield. And she, she did a very cool graphics. Uh, at some point, I'll put it up on the website. It was sort of one of the first infographics she did. And she convinced the monarchs at the time that we need to build hospitals. Because what did you do in the 1800s? You went into the hospital to die. That's where you went into the hospitals. There was, I mean, like you went there to die. It wasn't like you went there to have a nice bed and doctors came. So she had this vision that if we could clean the hospitals, make them, you know, clean up the hygiene, right? That one day doctors would come there and do clinical research. She was thinking like 300 years ahead. And so the modern healthcare system came out of that vision, but the goal was to put a soldier back on the field, okay? It wasn't about prevention. It wasn't a yogi sitting there observing some herb you know, phenomenon and trying to figure out prevention. Soldier got hurt. How do I fix that guy and put him back on the field? You, you follow what I'm saying? It was very, very reductionist, and it served its purpose. But modern medicine came from wartime medicine, getting the soldier back on the field. Okay, Eastern medicine, I would argue, came from a different approach. It was about observing things. I'm not saying one is better than the other, 
but it was based on prevention. This was based on when a disastrous situation took place. So if you, but the, the reason I brought you up 2003 is that the modern system of medicine was always that reactive model, right? This happens, I'm gonna do this. This happens, I'm gonna do this. And it was also based on the concept um, that complexity is a function of the number of parts. Let me explain what I mean by that. That it was not based on looking at the body or any system as a whole. It was based on that parts, the individual parts are we need to understand. So the example I gave, going back to the genome example, and I just give you a little glimpse of that, is that in 1993, when the Genome Project started, the theory was we knew a worm had 25,000, about 20,000 genes. And we didn't know how many genes a human being had, so people assumed we must have at least, you know, 20 times more, right? Because we're more complex. So complexity was correlated to the number of parts, number of parts being genes. Everyone following me? So we thought we must have a half a million genes. And if you look at the graph, starting from 1993, when they start trying to, they're not finding half a million genes. They can't find 100,000. They can't find 80,000. By the time the Genome Project ends in 2003, we have about 19,000 genes. Okay? So basically what that said, it's not the parts, but it's genes give rise to proteins, and proteins talk to other proteins, and you create this huge choreography, this huge dance. So it's much more complex. And those are called molecular mechanisms. So people realize that we need to look at the body not just as parts, but as the interaction of these parts and something emerges out of that. And that gave rise to a field called systems biology in 2003. And that's when I went back to MIT. I'd been in and out. I did three or four degrees, um, you know, was very interested in medicine. And I came back in 2003 because my advisor said, Shiva, you love computing and you've loved biology. You've always wanted to figure out how your grandmother did that stuff. And maybe this will give, give you a way to do that. So I came back in 2003 and the challenge was, could you mathematically model the whole human cell? So if you think about the cell as this huge choreography of molecular reactions, imagine if we could actually understand those reactions, those parts, connect them together, sort of re reverse engineer what nature did, then we would get a holistic understanding of the body. Everyone following me? And that's what people were starting to move towards. And that's when I came back and for my PhD work, I created a system called Cytosolve between 2003 to seven. And that was actually, just like today, I don't know if you know how we build airplanes. We don't risk pilots by just throwing them in a, in a plane, right? If you came up with a design, we, even before with the wind tunnel, we model it on the computer. We figure out all the different potential errors. Then we go to the wind tunnel and then we, we don't kill a lot of people, hopefully, right? Um, but in biology, we don't do that. In the current drug development model, how does it work? What they do is someone uh, may come up with some drug that they think affects, kills cancer cells. They go raise 40, 50 million dollars and you get a bunch of lab space in Kendall Square and you start testing your drug on a bunch of test tubes. It's called in vitro research, test tube. And then if you prove your drug actually kills cancer cells in a test tube, then you raise another 100 million and then you, get, you go kill animals. And you prove that your, your drug is efficacious in the, which means it works and it's not toxic. So in the drug development model, two, um, two axes are used. And, and one is efficacy, which means does the drug work? And the other is toxicity, okay? 
So there's two things. Efficacy and toxicity are important in drug development. So if you, if you ever have to take Advil, you notice that they say take two tablets, right? 400 milligrams. Well, it took them a lot of time to figure out 400 milligrams lowers pain. And if you take like over 1,000, it's going to hurt you, right? It's called, it's figuring out what that dosaging is, okay? So they may have figured out 400 milligrams is the right dosage, which is called the safe range. And this could be, you know, dangerous, right? And this could be not efficacious, okay? So this is what drug development companies are doing. They go through this process where they're trying to figure out toxicity and efficacy. And that's why they do today animal testing, unfortunately. And if, if they prove that works, then they go file... Uh, they go to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. They say, hey, now we want to test this on humans. And then they get an allowance. Uh, the FDA gives, gives them a right to go test on small groups of humans. That's called phase one. Larger groups of humans, that's called phase two. And like 10,000, 20,000 humans, that's called phase three. You follow? So they go through these phases. And every time you're passing those phases, if you're the business person who started this company, your stock price goes up. Okay? So there's always this motivation to get through phase one, phase two, phase three. So that's the drug development model. It's a linear model, and it's always based on one single molecule, which is called a drug. It cannot handle an herb, because an herb, like cannabis, has nearly 80 different molecules, right? Or turmeric has about you know, 30 different molecules. It was designed for a single synthetic compound that does not exist in nature, typically. Okay, and so you, and by the way, that process takes around 13 years, $5 billion, and from the time you start that process, you, your patent cycle starts. So from when you start that, uh, if, if you happen to discover a drug um, and you file for your patent, you have 20 years to recoup on that patent. So if it takes 13 years to develop that drug, you only have, what, seven years. And if there's only 100,000 people for that drug, you're going to have to price that about a half a million dollars. You follow? This is why drug development prices are so high. Um, and the drug that they've created was not done for you. It's not personalized. It was done for a blob that they call a statistical group of people. And so that drug was created for a, I call it a blob, right? It's like this statistical group. So by the time that drug comes out, that's why when you watch those commercials, it says it can cause this or it can cause this and it can cause this. And, cause this. Because, and by the way, those drugs at most are efficacious only for 10 to 15% of the audience without side effects. Okay, so that's the drug development model. When we created Cytosol, we said, wait a minute, we could do how we create airplanes. We will model all the molecular pathways up front. Long before we even go kill animals, we reduce what? The risk? Because we've, we're figuring out all the different potential opportunities. So Cytosol was a very radical, revolutionary invention. And before I got involved in the vaccine stuff, my entire area of research for the last 20 years has been personalized precision medicine, which is figure out combinations of natural products. And we work with some of the biggest companies in the world. So I say that background because typically if you are saying anything questioning vaccines, you're put into the anti-vax crowd, right? And you're looking at someone who works with Pfizer, who works with Al Nylum, big pharma companies. I, uh, we, we, just, we work with large consumer packaged good companies. Um, we work with companies who are actually starting to recognize this model doesn't work, that you have to bring in innovation like the kind of technologies I've done. So, so the second pillar, just to summarize, is the world is moving towards personalized and precision medicine. You know, I get in, in, invited to give talks at the NIH or... Um, you know, Harvard and MIT, you know, the most prestigious places. So it's not like you could say I'm an anti-vax guy. 
what I believe is in the progressive march of medicine, which is to be personalized and precise, which is, by the way, what was done 1,000 years ago, okay? So we're going sort of one big circle, which is fine, okay? Um, but the point is, now when it comes to vaccines, we are telling a child, okay, that they should get from the zero to 18 about 30 different vaccines, 70 different doses, and everyone is supposed to get all of this, right, in some combination. Sometimes they're all combined. Well, that sounds very medieval compared to what, you know, the guys over here are saying we should be moving to, precision and personalized medicine, doesn't it? So one of the arguments or one of the conversations we can have with the people who want to dismiss this is, wait a minute, if you are for science, don't, billions of dollars, Francis Collins, who's director of the NIH, if you go look up the word precision medicine, personalized medicine, that is the future of medicine. So if you want to move in that future direction, vaccines in some ways are, have not caught up even to the drug development model. So let's talk about that, because this transitions to the engineering piece. When Jonas Salk developed polio vaccine, how many people know that Jonas Salk was against double-blind saline placebo-controlled studies? Everyone know what a saline, double-blind saline? How many people know what a double-blind saline? If you don't, I'll explain it. Okay, so half people do. So, so remember, we go back to the scientific method, which is um, you have a hypothesis. I create something here, a drug, and I think it should work. Uh, one of the gold standards in medicine or in scientific research is you have testing, and that testing is based on double-blind saline placebo-controlled studies. Let me explain that. So I'll explain what double-blind means. So let's say we have a room of people here, and I want to test some medicine, that what I, whether I think it works or not. Half of the room I will give the medicine to. The other half of the room I will give saline, essentially salt water, right, if I'm injecting it. The double-blind nature comes in this none of you will know what you're getting. Okay, that means you're blinded. You're getting something. You, you don't know whether you got the medicine or whether you got the saline. Is that clear? That would, that's called a single blind piece. You don't know. But me, the researcher, I also don't know. All I get is numbers. I don't get people's names and what they got. Okay? And I mine that. That's called double blind. So it's double blind, which means I don't know what you got. You don't know what you got. The data will reveal itself. And it's saline placebo-controlled, okay? Which means you're getting the medicine or what's called just salt water, all right? So that's called the gold standard in, um, in, in medicine, in medical biological sciences research. If you look at the 30 vaccines uh, that are given to children, the zero to 30, you know, the 30 vaccines, 70 doses, um, and I'm gonna be very careful here, none of them except one, and that exception was also not done right, was none of them were tested double-blind, saline, placebo-controlled, okay? And, and the reason that was given for this, the reason, I, let me bring it up, I want to read it to you, because it's quite fascinating, um, because it's, it's shrouded always in something that is good for you. So let me, so basically, so people were asked, why didn't you, for vaccines, do double-blind uh, saline uh, control studies? And this was what the reason was given. The reason that was given was an ethical argument. 
Are you guys familiar with this? Some of you may are. But I'll read you what it says. It says, the reason that they said that if, if there are children here who need to be vaccinated, right, or tested, this was a reason. It said, if there is already a known vaccine that is safe and effective, it is unethical to randomize children into unvaccinated group over here because we would be denying them the benefits of being vaccinated. Okay, so this sounds to me like the chicken and the egg, right? I'll read it again. If there is already a known vaccine that is safe and effective, well, how do they know it's safe and effective? It is unethical to randomize children into an unvaccinated group because we will be denying them the benefits of being vaccinated. Now, the people who promote this are the same people who attack alternative medicine. So let me, by way of example, suppose I said this. If there's already a known herb that is safe and effective, like turmeric, which has been used for thousands of years, it is unethical to randomize people into a group not receiving the herb because we would be denying them the benefits of the herb. Right? Or suppose I said this. If there's already a known yoga posture that is safe and effective for relieving some spinal issue, it is unethical to randomize people into a group not receiving their yoga posture because we would be denying them the benefits of that yoga posture. Or if I said, if there is already a known chiropractic manipulation that is safe and effective, it is unethical to randomize people into a group not receiving the chiropractic manipulation because we would be denying them the benefits of the chiropractic manipulation. Now, if you said those last three, the medical community says, no, 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 this, these medicines have not been proven. You have to do double-blind control studies, right? But when I, by the way, this is, when I looked at this, this almost sounds like voodoo medicine, okay? Because there are, I, I, I say that because if you're going to apply a yardstick, you should apply it all the way. So if you're telling the people, you know, there are many procedures which have been proven safe and effective for thousands of years from other systems of medicine. But, you know, the, the, the anointed ones who want to support the scientific method, which we're all for, they pull the highest standards for those systems, but for when it comes to vaccines, they have the argument, they pull out the ethical argument. It makes no sense at all. I can't, I, I've, been, I've been trying to figure this out. It absolutely makes no sense. So the, the point here is, if you move now from the precision person to the, from an engineering approach, engineers don't do this, right? If you, if you build something, you test it under all the conditions. You want to figure out if your piece of software, if things work, and you're constantly testing things. You don't say, I'm not ethically going to, I don't believe we should test that bridge because it's ethically wrong or something. You don't do that. You, you, you go test things. The, interest, the, the thing that gets even more interesting here is that from an engineering systems perspective, the, the entire process of vaccine development is a engineering product. Let me explain what I mean by that, going to the engineering piece. Uh, remember I said civil engineers, they build bridges, right? Um, naval engineers, they build boats. Uh, electrical engineers, we build power plants. Well, when you build these systems, it is not, you, just, you don't look at the end product and do testing. It's the entire supply chain of how that's built. So when you build a bridge, people do risk assessment. There could be 100 different suppliers. You know where they're coming from, how they're putting these pieces together. This is all part of the, uh, uh, there's a whole area of science called engineering risk assessment. The field that we're talking about here is biological engineering. It's not biomedical. That was an old field. In 2003, uh, universities like MIT created a field called biological engineering. <coughs> biological engineering is using engineering principles in biology. 
Just like chemical engineering is a field that understands the principles of chemistry, biological engineering was created in 2003 because people recognize, wow, we're finding these amazing discoveries in biology. We can now use those discoveries to engineer new products. So a vaccine is not a medical thing. It's an engineered product out of a whole series of things. You follow what I'm saying? So, it's, so the doctor who, or the pediatrician who claims expertise in this actually is a very small piece of this. I would argue they have very little expertise in this. And, and, and so this is an important part of this argument because when you look at that entire supply chain, and let's take Gardasil for an example, or many of these vaccines, the vaccines have many different constitutive elements in them. It's not just the dead virus or the live virus or whatever they're putting in, it's many other things, right? It could be adjuvants, right? It could be the delivery mechanism, it's a, need, it's, it's a whole supply chain. And that entire supply chain has never been looked at in these risk assessment models because we're just looking at the end. It's like basically delivering the airplane and saying, well, yeah, it should work. But we don't do that in any other field of engineering. So one of the things that we want to propose is that we should treat this vaccines as an engineering product and look at the entire supply chain. So, so let me bring up, remember I said the 30 vaccines that were tested and I said with the exception of one? Well, Gardasil was supposedly double-blind, placebo-controlled tested, okay? Let's actually look at how it was, what they actually did. They took, um, they took about 10,000 people and they gave them the vaccine. <coughs> Um, are you familiar with these vaccines? Well, we'll talk a little bit about how, what they actually are made of and how they work. Is the vaccines have an ingredient which is supposed to signal your immune system to rise up and try to fight it, to, so it creates what are called antibodies, okay? And they put sometimes a, a live virus, a dead virus, you know, or, an, or a, not a live virus, an attenuated virus. But because that, uh, uh, that object cannot be immediately absorbed into your system, they add what are called adjuvants, aluminum being one of them. Aluminum is like the train that the vaccine rides on to get delivered, okay? So, sort of a simple analogy. Um, so in Gardasil, they tested 10,000 people with the actual vaccine. The other 10,000 people, what should they have given them if it's a saline placebo controlled? Saline. saline. Well, you know what they gave the other about 9,800 people? What's that? They gave them just the adjuvant, okay? And then a third group of people, it was very interesting, about 360 people, they gave them the saline, just the pure saline, okay, placebo. So they actually had three groups. They had the people with the virus, the people who got the virus or, or the vaccine, people got the, the vaccine without the, just with the adjuvant, and a third group who got the saline. When the results came, they found something interesting. 2.3% of the people who got the saline had autoimmune issues. 2.3% of the people got aluminum, but no one in the saline group, okay? But in the package insert, they combined the adjuvant group and the saline group, and they said, oh, you know, they're about the same. 2.3, 2.3, because they they're not even comparing the saline to the original virus, which would have been 0%, because no one in the saline group had any autoimmune issues. So they combined them, and no one really has been able to provide me an explanation why. Because it wasn't placebo, it was sort of half, or you know, whatever, a, a little bit placebo. And they combined that, and they, and, and they said that it's about the same, 2.3%, 2.3%, 
quote unquote toxicity, so it's no big issue. You follow? It's basically fraud, what was done. What's that? I think you misspoke about the three groups that it's not going to be here. Yeah, at first you said the same Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there was group one, which got the vaccine. Okay? Sorry. This was about 10K. Group two, I think it was about 9.9K, uh, got the aluminum, aluminum sulfate. Okay? Group three was about 360 people and they got the saline. This is about 360 people. So 10,000 people got the vaccine. About 98, 9,900 uh, 9, people, close to 10, got the, uh, this is group two, got the aluminum. And in group three was people who just got the saline. Is that clear? Okay. Um, but when they were, 2.3% in this group got autoimmune disorders, okay? 2.3% in this group. Um, but when they reported it, they combined both of these groups together. And they said this was saline placebo controlled. And that's what they reported on the package insert. Does this make sense? It doesn't make sense. It, the, we, the, it does, yeah, so some people argue, this is a theory, that the reason they included 360, what this, this may have been 2.4%, that they needed to bring that number down. Okay? They needed to increase the denominator. Okay? Uh, it's a theory. I'm not going to, but I'm saying this is not a saline placebo controlled study. This is sort of a half assed saline placebo controlled study. Okay, or not even half-assed. It's probably like, you know, one sixteenth. <laughs> um, if you if you look at it. So. And why there was a 10, what's that? And why there was a ten thousand Yeah, exactly. So why didn't they do equal groups? Okay, but so you know what? So you'll see people saying, "Oh, they did a saline placebo control." No, they didn't. This is not real science, Alessandra. Control. No, they just they just did they just say the control. They just say control. They don't they don't do this. This is you have to go read the research. So it can leave you with the assumption that the group that gets nothing would by just sheer chance get autoimmune disorder anyway. Exactly. So the reality is you know, if you look at it logically, the aluminum was probably doing something. Of course. But they can say it's saline, and they can say oh, it's still about the same. So when you really look at this, remember, we, we rely on academics, we rely on scientists to be disinterested third parties. And when you see stuff like this, to me it causes concern as someone who's in the field, who's forced to live by all of these strictures, and this is what I'm trained in. So this was a big red flag for me. Because in engineering, if you did this, I, I don't know if you remember, remember the space shuttle when it blew up? Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting story. Uh, I remember, because I used to like, like to watch those launches, I remember seeing it in the 80s. I remember getting up at 5 in the morning, and I saw all these icicles. I said, wow, that's weird. I hope they're not going to... Because it, it, it had never been in those conditions. I never saw it when it was that cold. Anyway, it goes up and it blows up. There were scientists, engineers, who told um, their management that the O-ring 
could get destroyed, you know, and um, they still went up with it, okay? So my point is that when you have this kind of data going on, we are the people who are getting this data, and the doctors, remember, most doctors, nice people, there's a lot of smart, there's, there's some very good smart ones, but most of them essentially follow a recipe because of the nature of medicine. So they probably don't even know this because most of those guys don't even have time to go to, go to clinicaltrials.gov and read any of this. So that's where this has moved to. Um, any questions on this? Yep. So this is a huge uh, debate with my husband and I because he felt, and I'm excited you're recording this so you can watch it. Um, he felt because he invests in pharmaceuticals, right, and pays attention to stocks and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I follow this stuff and it takes like at least five years, right, for things to get approved and to go. I'm like, no, this is like what Robert Kennedy and, you know, other scientists are doing and showing is that this is not true for vaccines. So one of the other big things is my husband's like, you're not a doctor. Why would I believe you over a doctor? So that's one of the reasons why I'm here. You know, I'm like, I'm going to surround myself by really smart people who, you know, can intelligently look at these types of reports because, yes, I've studied it a ton over the last three years because I have a two-and-a-half-year-old who is unvaccinated. And, um, and but it's been, really, it's been really, really hard. You know, there's been times where, honestly, I'm like, when my marriage, like, you know, disappeared because of this because I never knew I would care so much about it. So my question to you is, how do, like, this, like, what you just, like, took apart, it's so hard for the average person mm -hmm. to really, ha you know, to ha be armed with that information. So it's like, how can there, where can you go or can I go to get, like, every, like, 30 vaccines to show, to prove, right, that this never, that it never happened? You know? I, I have a document I can yeah. give you, which has, if you want, I'll circulate it, yeah. which, which has, so one of the things we're doing, uh, I did this, by the way, there's a whole other, I did this with GMOs about five years ago when I got into it, but what we're doing is we say the only way to, uh, uh, to, to, to have, the only way for science to win right. is freedom and transparency. Mm -hmm. And anyone who doesn't want freedom and transparency, they don't want to do science. So one of the things we're, gonna, we're doing on October 26, because of all the stuff that's going on, we've called a, the first international conference on vaccine risk assessment. And we've had, yeah, so we've, we've, had, we've, had, uh, we've had nearly 415 people sign up. A lot of, about 80% of people are observers, which is fine. We're going to put it up on Zoom, transparency. And we have about, I think, 20 scientists. And by the way, you don't have to be, have a PhD. If you actually have ever worked on data, you know, part of what I support is citizen science, and I'll talk more about it if you want me to, but um, the notion is that let's look at, so the technology that, it's a very weird thing, because I never thought I'd be into this. I spent this whole, I've spent a lot of my time building ways to look at knowledge and bring it together, you know, a systems approach. Um, and we do this in many other fields. For example, using this technology we created, we actually, uh, discovered a multi-combination therapy for pancreatic cancer in a record 11 months. Um, and we got allowed by the FDA. Now, I say that because not because I care about pharma. If anything, I'm into food as medicine. But um, th this capability has been published in Nature, the number one science magazine in the world, Cell. So I'm in a very unique situation because you can't attack me as some fringe guy. That this technology has actually been published in major literature, and we're going to use that same technology, and one of the things we want to do is we want to take every piece of literature 
that's been written since 1940 or 50 on vaccines and organize it, all of it, and make it open source accessible. And what that will do, because right now what's happening is a lot of mothers uh, and very smart people like yourselves are starting to have to do their own science. That's because everyone I talked to, I started going to PubMed. So we want to uh, curate all of that science and start categorizing it. Okay, this paper, what is this paper? Which vaccine is it related to? It's called the taxonomy. We're going to do it, and we're going to make it very graphically accessible. And I've done this in another area. So everyone can literally go and find it. And if people pro or vax, pro-vax or anti-vax, say, oh, blah, 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 well, give us your paper. It'll be curated. So it's not going to be like, I believe. There's, not, there's no belief in science. You know, when Bernie Sanders said, I believe in climate, you know, I have a problem with There's no belief. Science is irrespective of your belief. It's about, you know, this earth does go around the sun. You can't, there's no belief there. There are certain things there's no belief around. You know, you jump out of the window, you're going to hurt yourself, okay? Very few people I've seen can levitate still, okay? So, um, so we want to say, here's the body of science. And look, there is only one paper that has a double blind. Show me another one. Okay, you have one? Great. Oh, but that wasn't really saline. That was a double blind control. You know, so we can start looking at all of these. That's the first step we're going to do. The other step, which I, I can't talk a lot about, but I'll give you some preview. Um, I think we, it, it'll be coming out in about the next 90 days. We think we've made a major breakthrough through our technology to actually figure out the fundamental thing between um, vaccines and, the, and what happens when you get immunized. And I can explain it this way. Um, this will sort of educate you on why, why, what is vaccination, what is immunization, okay? So why, do, why were vaccines created? Let's go back to that. Um, well, we had polio, right? So when polio was occurring, um, there was this huge recognition, oh my God, we gotta save people, right? Paralysis, this awful thing could occur. So Jonah Salk, I think he was a sincere, guy, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and he was under all this urgency, but he implored um, the regulators or the, the vaccine council at the time, please don't do double-blind saline placebo-controlled studies. It's interesting. So Jonas Salk was against because of the urgency, okay? They didn't use the ethical argument, they used the urgency argument. And after um, uh, the next year, 400,000 people, which you may, it's, it's sort of not talked about historically, were given the lie vaccine and 368 people got injured because accidentally the, there was an injury that took place. Remember I talked about the engineering of these vaccines? No one did the proper quality assurance and people actually got paralysis, etc. So when you go back to the Jonas Salk situation, if you ask people, well, why is Western medicine so great? What do they bring up? Polio, Right. The victory of humans over polio is always brought up as a big thing of Western medicine. And so because of that, there's an aura around that, around Jonas Salk, and, and that aura continues. But that aura was based only on efficacy. He was concerned about efficacy, not about toxicity. You got what I'm saying? Because of the urgency, everything was about efficacy. So. Jonas Salk also said, well, as long as the antibody shows, we should be happy. Game, set, match. Why are you concerned about any toxicity? As long as the antibody shows, that should be... So efficacy was put on a high pedestal, but not toxicity. So 
when I started unraveling this, it looks like culturally, the vaccine culture, it comes from Jonas Salk, it comes from the victory of Western medicine over a horrible disease, and therefore, they gave leeway to toxicity. So that's why my theory is toxicity was always put on the back burner. You know, the, 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 the harmful things it could cause. So go to 1963, measles. So in, uh, if you were to look at prior to 1963, if you got measles, people used to have measles parties, right? Um, people, it, would, it was a rash, you know, you got some um, skin issues, and then it went away. However, they found out that, again, this was a risk assessment number. One out of 100,000 people were getting neuroinflammation, okay, which is SSPE, um, uh, subacute sclerosis uh, panencephalitis, okay? Sclerosing panencephalitis, SSPE. And you can look it up. Go to PubMed, and any article on why we need to get measles vaccine will, will, will bring this issue up in the first introductory, introductory section of most of these papers. So this is a form of brain inflammation. So they said one out of 100,000, which is 0.001%, going back to the bridge analogy, the one out of 100, but 0.001% was considered, someone decided, I wasn't involved in that decision-making, but somebody decided that was too high, therefore we needed to create the measles vaccine. Okay, measles vaccine gets created, and after that, if you look at neuroinflammation that's taking place, brain inflammation, um, is now, at least in the people who, uh, I'm, I'm only going to use the word autism once in this lecture, that's it, in that group, it was one out of 88, which is 1.136% neuroinflammation. So that means now you have a, a whole bunch of people who are getting neuroinflammation, but the percentage is 1.136. So that's like the bridge, right? 2% bridge failures after the preventative action. Now we have 1.136% people getting neuroinflammation, young people. Before it was one out of 100. So obviously you'd say, wait a minute, something's going on here. I'm not saying again, correlation means causation, but you would say, wait a minute, we should mechanistically understand. Does everyone understand the argument that I just made? Okay, so, but we haven't done that. We haven't gone and understood the mechanisms. Um, in fact, today there's many double digit percentages of young people with autoimmune disorders. I mean, I'm not going to quote because I've seen a range, but it's, it, it's double digits of young people having autoimmune disorders. So what's really going on, okay? Um, so we have two immune systems. So, what it, so let's go back to why do people exercise? Why do we eat well? Why do we, do, you know, why do we go do weights? Um, why do we do all this stuff? Well, the principle in health is called resilience. Okay, there's, it's a very... Um, key word that you can probably take out of all these three things that I shared with the risk issue, the pr precision medicine, and the engineering thing, ultimately you're trying to make things resilient. When we build skyscrapers, we don't make them brittle. We make them having a little bit of motion, right? You want to have a little bit of flexibility. You want it to move. When you build your body, if you were to exercise, if you were to go do heavy weight seven days a week, you're going to burn up muscle tissue. But you do it for four days and people learn to rest, okay? Um, the notion of stressing your body and relaxing, the warrior monk model, is the ultimate way to define health. And that's called resilient training. So if you want to be healthy, you want to have resilience. Now nature has already figured this out. So here's what's, so, so, the, so, so in nature, we have two systems. We have what's called the innate immune system 
and the adaptive immune system. Innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. We have two immune systems. And, and um, those systems exist to enable us to go into the world so we don't have to live in a bubble, right? So we can experience some level of stress, get strengthened, and from that strength training, we get stronger, okay? This is a fundamental principle that should be discussed in the vaccine discourse. So the innate immune system is everything that's accessible from the world directly. It's not through the bloodstream, okay? It's through your eyes. We have all this mucosal lining. It's through your nose, right? It's through your gut, uh, skin. You follow? This is what's called your early shield, okay? So most of these microbes come through there, and then as a part of that, your body reacts. It has a whole system of macrophages, neutrophils. It has all these subsystems that awaken your body to say, I'm under attack. And that system is the early, on, is, is the early immune system. It's like, you're, it's like a bunch of soldiers. They're, they're, they don't, they'll just shoot at anything, okay? <laughs> they just have guns and they'll start shooting. They don't care what it is. They say something's happening. They start. So that's your, your, and that's, that's why they call it the non-specific immune system, okay? It sees stuff coming. It says, fire all missiles, okay? And that system um, is the first, so that's why whenever you, if you ever get a virus, you know, you go, go to the gym or you, you, you know, you got sneezed on, you'll go through the 72-hour phase where your eyes will tear, you'll get a fever, right? That's the early stage immune system. That's your body trying to ward that off. That's why some people say, you know, you can cause fevers like a sauna, right? These are things that your body's trying to uh, annihilate that pathogen using the innate immune system. After that process takes place, your body then goes to what's called the adaptive immune system. So it tries, it, it uses this system, and then this adaptive immune system is targeted for that particular pathogen. All right? So let's say the pathogen is measles, you get it through your respiration. You get the rash, you get the fever, 72 hours, right? And then your body actually builds an immunity, what are called antigens, um, on, the, on the surface of what are called your immune, uh, your secondary system, your adaptive system, and it creates antibodies specific to measles. So if you were to check your body, you would have these antibodies for measles. You following me? So you have the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. But if you drew a box, stuff comes in here, you're exposed to this in the natural world. This then leads to the adaptive immune system then being uh, innervated. So next time you get hit with that particular pathogen, it's ready, okay? It's almost more efficient. It doesn't have to go through here. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Can you clarify a couple of things, please? I keep looking at T1 versus T2. Can you explain that? TH1, yeah. Yeah. So how do they apply to what you're saying? Yeah, so I don't want to get too detailed into it, but broadly, the... The T cell system is in the adaptive immune system, okay? T cells and B cells, if you, re so if you see T and B cells, it's the adaptive immune system. If you hear about macrophages, dendritic cells, they're in the early stage. So think about, you have like just soldiers here, they have a bunch of names, uh, you know, dendritic cells, uh, plasma, uh, th th there's a whole bunch of players who are in the early stage immune system, and then there's players, B cells and T cells, 
which are in the adaptive immune system. In fact, there's a lot of companies now being created to solve cancer by actually creating cell therapy, like actually creating cytotoxic T cells. Because frankly, the drug development model is failing. None of their drugs are working, so they have to move to a, a different method. But, so, but bottom line, if you go play in dirt and you, you, you play with other friends, you're exposed to this, uh, to antigens. By the way, antigen means broadly things that turn on your immune system. You know, it could be a virus, it could be bacteria, it could be dirt, it could be peanuts, you know what I mean? These allergens, okay? These things are called antigens. They turn on your immune system. They awaken them. Now, the theory of vaccines is, well, we want to immunize you, which means we want to strengthen you, but we're not going to make you run. We're going to put you on a treadmill and lift you up a little bit and have you run. Do you see what I'm saying? Like reduce almost gravity. So you're not really being stressed out, but you're going to move your feet. And so when you get these vaccines, most of them de delivered into the bloodstream, are what? Going around the innate immune system. You follow? They're not turning on your immune processes in the natural mode. So the assumption of vaccines is that I'm going to, I know better than nature. I'm going to go right to your adaptive immune system. So when, when they give either the attenuated form of the measles vaccine, and by the way, it's probably not going to be highly bioavailable, so they add other things called adjuvants, because now you're creating something that doesn't occur in nature, and you're delivering it into the bloodstream, which would rarely not occur, and then you're overcoming the innate immune system, and you're sending it right into the adaptive immune system. You got it? Now, and the, whole, and the goal is that that will turn on your B cells and your T cells to recognize that single virus, and it may do that. Let's assume it does. Let's give them that. But I would argue that there are other things that also got turned on, okay, if, when it went through this model, okay? Now, evidence of this, and I'm probably going to be publishing something on this because we think we've made a pretty significant discovery. There is a phenomenon called viral interference, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll sort of end on this. How are we doing on time? Are we okay, Alessandra? Yeah. Everyone bored? <laughs> okay. So there, there's, there's a process called viral interference. Um, Scientists, what's that? Okay, we'll finish up in, so we want some question and answer, right? So I'll finish up in about five minutes. So there's a very interesting phenomenon. Like I always wondered, and this was what was bothering me about vaccines per se. I don't like being injected. I don't think anyone does. But why do we only have 30 vaccines? Why don't we have 100,000 vaccines? You ever think about that? Because there's, a there's lots of pathogens. Who's deciding only to do these 30? Why don't we have 100,000 vaccines? Just think about that. Why not? But yet there's people who never get vaccines that seem pretty strong, right? So why is that? So imagine this concept. Imagine that, you know, when you start, it's been known that if you start doing one type of exercise, you start, it strengthens your whole body, right? It protects you from injury in many different ways. So it turns out there's a phenomenon called viral interference. And it's not talked about that much. It's a concept that came around in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s. And what they discovered was that if they took an animal or a human, and they, uh, particularly animals when they did testing, and they gave it one virus or vaccine, guess what? That animal could also withstand five other viruses. 
Let me repeat that. So you gave it a virus for one thing, and that animal was also, in that region, was also able to withstand other viruses. It's as though that one virus turned on the immune system, not only against that single virus, but, and this was, by the way, they used live viruses, you know, and, and putting it right on the surface through the normal mode. That, um, the animal was also ready for many other viruses, which means that single virus got it ready, or that single pathogen got it ready for fighting not just that one virus, but many viruses. So that, to me, logically tells me that we don't need to get hit with all these vaccines. Maybe we're supposed to be get exposed to a certain set of viruses, and we turn on our system because it is documented that we have viral interference. And this has been well documented. So my question now is why are we decide who is deciding which vaccines to give? What are the risk assessment standards? Given that we have personalized medicine, why are we giving the same vaccines to everyone? And given the fact that this is an engineering product, where is the risk assessment standards? And what this leads me to believe, and I, I can't share it right now because for, for some disclosure issues, but I will share it publicly. We have figured out something significant, the missing link between the innate system and the adaptive system. There is something that turns these systems on that you actually need to turn on the innate immune system, that we're actually compromising certain things that should be turned on. And the things that get turned on when you get exposed are extremely important for, guess what, alleviating autoimmune disorders. So this is not just an antibody. So the, the thesis, again, Western medicine is great, but it's, it's reductionist, right? Solve one issue. Don't look at the whole. So the whole model is, I'm going to give you a vaccine, and if that antibody's there, great, we have success. We've hit the goal line. Well, that's not true, because when you get hit with things through the innate immune system, it's turning on many other processes. And imagine if we could have a test that you take an unvaccinated child and a vaccinated child, and I could actually find certain chemicals that are in the unvaccinated child that are highly beneficial that are not in the vaccinated child, that you actually show that certain things get turned on that do not get turned on. And I think I found out what those are. Yep. Which is this way, yeah. Well, the issue, so what I'm saying, it may, one of the things I can share with you, what's fascinating is in a very weird and fortuitous way in my PhD work, I actually modeled this aspect of the immune system. And it turns out something fascinating. There is a part of our immune system that it actually, when a virus comes, it actually turns on a set of machinery that gets ready for the next virus. So that tells me that, our, that these pathogens are not enemies, that they're actually our friends, that we have evolved to actually have these pathogens come and turn on our immune system to actually make us stronger. So someone decided that obviating that process and going through the bloodstream is better than that natural process. So my question today, that's why the risk assessment is important, is, is that process, what is the risk of a thousand people getting exposed to measles, right? And then their immune system being turned on and potentially that turning on alleviates many other diseases downstream versus getting the inject, um, and versus the one out of 100,000 number that they use. Oh my God, if we do that, 
1% are going to get injured, 0.001% are going to get injured. That's why we need to give the shot into the bloodstream, okay? The risk assessment has not been done to denote what happens when you go through this way and the risks of not doing that way versus the other. You, see, you follow what I'm saying? That risk, that's an engineering, has not been done. But we have the tools to do that. And I think that's the adverse reaction of not giving a vaccine. We know with measles, one out of 100,000. I think recently after, they're saying it's one out of 1,700. Okay, 0.56%. Okay, it's still an order of magnitude less, right, than the people who are now getting neuroinflammation. That number, that risk assessment number is key. So in closing, what I want to tell you is that we don't know what the risks are versus us actually being the native immune system, being the innate immune system being turned on, and then our adaptive immune system, that process, versus injecting it and going through this way. We don't know what those numbers are. And until we don't know that, I don't think it should be something you impose on people. And what's fascinating, I find, is I think Charlie Baker has just said a ban on vaping, right? Because 568 people got hurt. Now, how was that decision made? Huh? Versus 20,000 lawsuits that were filed in the vaccine court, right? So the issue really begins, who are, how, we, how are these decisions being made? Who is making these decisions? Are they being done on standardized principles or are they being done arbitrary? Because if they're being done arbitrarily, we really have a fundamental issue. What's that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really comes down to an issue, you know, in closing that, that um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, everyone, you know, I, four years ago, we wrote a series when the genetic engineering debate was going on. We actually used this technology to show that when you do genetic engineering of soy, that it actually upregulates formaldehyde in the soy plant. And we published a series of papers and we showed that glutathione levels drop and then people actually grew the soy plant in London in Leeds and they found the same results from our model. Um, Monsanto is one of the big proponents of genetically engineered foods. Um, they're also one of the big proponents of climate change if you go on their website. And with their merger with Bayer, they're actually one of the bigger, biggest promote, promote, proponents of vaccines. So you have a very interesting phenomenon taking place with the amount of capital flow that goes into this and that we don't discuss risk. So I think the way we really bring this discourse to beyond this vax, anti-vax is show me the risk assessment. Show me the risk assessment. And why are we moving to one size fits all when the world of medicine is moving to personalized medicine? And you know what? This is not medicine. It's a biologically engineered product like a bridge, like other things. Let's use engineering risk assessment principles. This is the modern world. And if you don't want to do that, then you're not really doing science. You want to go back 50, 60 years when we didn't have these tools. Thank you. So we can do some questions, right? Yeah. Let me just see how this is doing. Yep. So that was great. I think you're very logical, and I think this is a nice approach. I mean, Suzanne Humphreys, Dr. Humphreys, has done dissolving illusions to talk about how polio was actually eradicated before the vaccine. And there have been, Horace Moretti has written the Moth and the Iron Moth. I mean, there are, there are a lot of arguments about the efficacy, actually, of these big narratives around vaccines. But put that aside. 
I just think that, um, can you speak to the weird biologic? There's this narrative that, well, you know, vaccines are biologics, they're not medicines, they're not drugs, so we don't have to use the placebo, line placebo study. Can you speak to that logic? You know, like how, is that mm. just follow the money, they just made that up, or, because it sounds like your logic is all meds, all drugs are genetic, or they're engineered, they're biologics, they're not, so is there a distinction? Well, I, I guess what I, yeah, I, I, yeah, so, so the question, just to repeat, is um, some people say that vaccines don't need to undergo the double blind. First, they use the ethics argument, right? Now the thing is where they're biologics, right? They're naturally sort of occurring. Um, but the, here's, here's the issue, right? They don't do that with turmeric. They don't do that with natural products. Um, the NIH has set up this thing called complementary and alternative medicine. If you want to make a claim, like if you go to Whole Foods right now, you see the supplements, you notice um, they always have that little star on the back. You know why? Because the FDA says you cannot make claims unless you go through this process, what's called double, you know, through the clinical study process. So if you actually want to say turmeric, um, you know, reduces liver cancer, there's been epidemiological work. Um, but you would actually have to do a double-blind placebo-controlled study. But the, thesis, the problem I have is they're telling everyone that vaccines are safe and efficacious. That's a claim that's being made. That's fine. So if you want to be able to make that claim without testing, then let's do it for everything. Let's do it for yoga. Let's do it for chiropractic. Let's do it. Apply your principle across the board. Because if you're not doing it, it's almost a neo-colonialist model. It's saying, like, these set of things which were discovered in the last hundred years are better than all these other systems of medicine. So I'm saying it's arbitrary. If you're going it, to, it's basically, it's illogical actually, there's no rationale. But if you're going to do that, then let's say, you know, remove that star because there's a lot of people, you can say, look at on Amazon's website. I'm not saying we should do this. A lot of people try turmeric, right? Say it alleviates inflammation. I'm using that as an example, right? But no one would accept the modern medical um, uh, ethos doesn't accept that. You have to go through this, and that's... I love it. I think it's very, you know, it's very logical, and it appeals to a broad audience. Yep. Also, I just want to mention Miller Group, because I think you're aware of that, right? Yep. I think the main goal is if we can bring people back to, like you said, a logical notion, like we, it's not like we're against vaccines. If you want to even take a very rational position, we're for safe vaccines or safe immunization. And it should be attuned to the individual, okay? Every individual is different. I want to figure out what's right for my body. And the other aspect is we don't know enough about the engineering system of the body, the native and the, the I mean, the innate and the, the adaptive immune system. Yep. That's what I'm saying. So I, I think, but again, if you just use your logic, you'll realize that we have these systems that we're supposed to use. 
These systems were developed to be used and strengthen ourselves. Yep. Um, so the other big challenge now, which I'm curious, is the censorship, right? And so, of course, I made this comment to my husband, so he immediately goes on Google. I'm like, you do realize that they're censoring now. So yeah. there's a lot of great research, you know, even over the last three years, that used to be at the top of Google that I can attest to. There's things that I literally would just scrape an entire article and I would save it into my Evernote because I knew eventually the links would start to die, and they did, you know? And um, so that, the other thing is, like, as far as, like, research and, like, censorship and email, not all of them, you're backing in that regard. Like, how, I guess, how do we create that? Yeah, it's a good, so, information yeah, to, like, it's a great. censored by Facebook, Instagram, like, yeah. things get shut down all the time now. So there's a solution for that, Okay. So let me tell you what the actual... So there was an... Or, this is going to sound... When I first say this, you're going to say, what? Okay? There was an organization called the U.S. Postal Service. You remember them? Okay. So uh, the reason I, I brought this... I bring this up. There's a book I have there. It's called The Future of Email. It's not really an ad, but it's a, it's a good book because I bring this up. In, when the founding fathers of this country created the Postal Service, they created it because a crown was not allowing certain flow of information. And the Postal Service was created as a decentralized um, system. It was really not, it was sort of part, not part of the government, but it was created that I could send Andreas a letter, he could send you a letter, and no one would interfere. In fact, the Postal Service had a police force that if any postal worker interfered, it was 20 year sentence in prison, okay? But, and up until 1970, nearly 70% of the information that went through the Postal Service, guess what? It was political mail, right wing, left wing, Nazis, Green Party, it was totally free, right? And you could send a letter for 20 cents, 10 cents, very low cost. But the founders of this country created the Postal Service, and by the way, in those days, they only had the print letter, right? They didn't have, um, they didn't have what we, let me just turn this off so it doesn't bug us. They didn't have, um, uh, email, right? They didn't have faxes. So for that medium, the Postal Service was set up so we could have free exchange of information. So if we wanted to, we could overthrow our government, right? So if we wanted to organize a revolution, we could do that without their interference. That's why, because remember, the Declaration of Independence allowed for that. Um, so the Postal Service was set up as that. Now, some of you may have read, I created the first email system. And I did. I did it as a 14-year-old kid. And the reason I bring that up was we're not talking about simple text messaging. When I was 14, I was working as a full-time research fellow in a medical school. And in those days, the postal system of the office system was the inner office mail system. Always manned by a woman who had a typewriter. They did the inbox, outbox folders. And it was a very complex system. You would write a memo. You could carbon copy. You put it in these pneumatic tubes. And it was the inter-office mail system. I was asked to convert that system to the electronic version. As a 14-year-old kid, I wrote 50,000 lines of code, called it email, a term never used before, and got the first US copyright for it, recognizing me as the inventor of email long before I came to MIT. Thank you. It's, it, the, well, now, huh? Well, proper respect to you. So. Yes, now I did that before I came to MIT, never spoke about it, was a good humble Indian boy, right? When I, it was, it was, no, it was, because it was listed on the front page of MIT when I came in 81, I didn't say much. Fast forward, when my mom was dying about six years ago of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis, she had saved all of this. Time magazine came and wrote an article called A Man Who Invented Email, and then it went into the Smithsonian. And on that day, it created this huge shitstorm, 
to say it lightly, because the existing narrative was email was created by the military. They didn't. They did simple text messaging at best. But a 14-year-old kid in a health sciences institution created email. So the narrative is that all great innovations must come from war, but email actually came from a health institution. We fought. We actually won a million-dollar lawsuit. They tried to defame me. The reason I bring that up, I know what email is. So in 1997, I met with the Postal Service. 1997 was an important date because that was a date that email volume overtook postal mail volume. Okay? And I went to the Postal Service, guys. I was running a different company to analyze email. It was a completely my second whirlwind with email, helping the Clinton White House analyze email. We grew that to a large company to do email analysis. So I met with the Postal Service. I said, look, you guys should be offering a public email service. And they said, what are you talking about? And they said, you know, we're the Postal Service. We have 500,000 employees. We're bigger than Walmart. Get out of here, right? Um, because they didn't realize that they were in the communications business, not in the print letter business. That, that wasn't what the founders of this country wanted. They wanted them to provide an infrastructure for free communication to take place. And in fact, they set, up, set it up that if anyone interfered, you, you get thrown in prison. So 1997 was important because that's when Hotmail, Yahoo, all these guys came. And most people, when they gave up, got their free email, gave up their freedom. Because in those privacy statements, it says they own your email. Okay? Facebook, they own your content. You don't own your content. So my concern was that the Postal Service should offer a public email service because now at your communication would be protected by the laws of the United States. So these guys didn't agree with me. And then 2011, if you go read the front page of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the Postal Service is going out of business. So I again hit them hard. There was an interview that came out in time. I said, these guys are a bunch of idiots. I got a little more dramatic. And uh, I said, you know, you know, Franklin was an innovator. So the inspector general called me. He goes, Shiva, why are you attacking us? I said, his name is Dave Williams. Dave Williams is now the board of governors. I said, Dave, you guys aren't doing your job. So they hired me, gave me about 100K to write two reports on how they can make billions of dollars. Wrote them up, presented it. They haven't done anything. And I called Dave again recently, okay? So what's happened is the Postal Service is not doing its job. All those little postal centers, they could create what's called a mesh network that we could be an independent network, a network by the people, for the people, and provide us public email service, public social media service, that when you put up content, it's your content. They're never going to be able to regulate Google and Facebook. These guys will spin circles around these dumb congressmen. They don't even know what Zuckerberg is even saying. They don't even know what questions to ask him. But the postal service, in my view, is not print mail. So the ultimate way out of this is there is an infrastructure that the founders created. And we need to digitize that infrastructure to the 21st century. Will that happen? Well, I'm going well, to be, again, agitating on this. And uh, that's why I'm running for Congress, you know, Senate. Because, and, and, and by the way, you should not... Just because I have an R, I don't care for either party. By the way, when I said I was running, Charlie Baker and Bill Wells supported Joe Kennedy, the Democrat. Just to give you an idea, we don't live in Democrats and Republicans, black and white. We live in a world of aristocrats and the everyday working people. We got to realize that this Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, it's all BS. The real division is there's a set of people who think they're better. They know better than you. They can pass laws whenever they want, restrict freedom, and the rest of us are their plebes. Remember, after the 1776 revolution took place, a lot of those people didn't leave. <laughs> they didn't get back on a boat and go to London. They embedded themselves in institutions here. 
So we have to think about that, that this division of two parties and, and black nationalists against white supremacists, all this stuff is just created to divide us pro-vax, anti-vax. And I think if we can bring the discourse to conversations about like basic, basic rational thinking. The good news is everyday working people, like most of you in this room already get it. You don't need to get a degree from MIT or Harvard. Most people work with their hands, interact with people, already have a sense of natural laws, and they know something doesn't feel right. The people who don't get this are what I call the vulnerable educated elites, because they've been educated to always please people, their professors, and the professors are educated to please other people to get their grants. So I think the opportunity to answer your question is, that's, it goes back to the beginning, the vaccine, to me what's wonderful about the vaccine discourse, it's a little bit different than climate because it's way in the future. It's a little bit different than GE foods. Vaccines affects people like here and now. And that issue is a political issue, it's a scientific issue, it brings up so many amazing things to expose the fundamental problems we're having. And I, I, so I feel very you know, fortunate to be able to have this discussion because it, you know, all the training I had almost brings me to this point in front of you to let you know that w this opportunity is an opportunity to bring up many issues. That's what's so compelling about the vaccine issue because it's very personal. It's directly related to health, it's directly related to policy, it affects freedom. It affects all the principles that this country was you know, built on and that a finite set of people think that they can control science and move everything to consensus versus science itself. And I think that's a big opportunity we have. So we should really see this as an opportunity to get educated um, on some of these principles that I'm teaching you about and then share that with others because it really comes down to who is defining risk, who is making these decisions, and how does that affect our lives? And it affects it immediately. Yep. I also want to make a point because a little while ago you said something like we all want safe vaccines. We do, but I want to tell you that safe immunization. Safe and safe immunization. It may not be vaccines. But, yep. but what I'm saying is I still think personally I have the right then to decide. Definitely. Yes, so, so it's, you're bringing up an interesting point, right? So the pro-choice movement, right? That was based on women being able to own their bodies. The same people who supported pro-choice are against the, 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 that's what's fascinating, right? What? Yeah, so, but, but I think where that's coming from is this lack of understanding. It's, it's coming from ignorance. And it's coming from this ignorance that many of these people do not even understand basic science. Mm -hmm. There's a great guy that if you ever have a chance to read called C.P. Snow. He, he wrote a great essay called Two Cultures. Uh, C.P. Snow um, was a, a novelist, a literary giant, and he was a physical chemist. He was a scientist and a humanist. And he, and he said he used to go to these events at you know, the British elite 
and he would go ask a room full of people, how many people know the second law of thermodynamics? And they would get all upset at him because they thought he was just being arrogant. He goes, well, that question I asked you is as important as, do you know Shakespeare? So what's happened is we've created a world right now where this basic scientific understanding, people aren't learning when they graduate college. And that's been removed. They're learning other stuff, but the basic fundamentals of the scientific method people don't even understand. Because if they did, and if you simply went at this placebo, the, the lack of placebo-controlled studies, it would bring up this issue of risk. And I think that's where this discussion needs to move to. And when you don't have risk assessment, it comes back to me. And, and even more fundamental is that medicine was always supposed to be a relationship between the doctor and the patient. It was supposed to be a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And, and the health emerged out of that relationship. It wasn't top-down.